Hey boomers, this is Sonic the Comic the Podcast, your look back at the Sega-sational world of the 1990s and the United Kingdom's official Sega comic. We are your humans who think we're in charge. I am Chris McFeeling. And I am Dave Bulmer, and in this episode, we are looking at issue number four, the 10th of July, 1993. Featuring now, well, <laughs> before we launch into the cover, I want to talk about something else this is featuring. We've never really uh, felt the need to pretend that we're very, very wealthy people. We start each thing with hey boomers, but we're not of that generation. And so I just want to explain that I live in the sort of flat, in the sort of city where I can't do anything about the drilling that's going to be happening outside throughout <laughs> today's just, record. I, I just heard it there, yeah. Uh, yeah, they've just decided this morning to start doing some roadworks right outside my window, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. So, listeners, that's what that is. Never worry. So, we have a significant cover this issue because it is the very first non-sonic cover that we've ever had yeah here we have shinobi it introduces that little corner box where if sonic's not on the cover there has to be a little box saying that sonic is in oh, the oh yeah what starring sonic the hedgehog starring sonic the hedgehog when sonic's not on the cover all the characters should be asking Where's Sonic? <laughs> and there's a little there's a little picture of him in that in that genuinely I think delightful kind of traced by an intern style where it's like mm. it started life as a perfectly good drawing of Sonic and then it's been traced over in I, maybe it's maybe it's an, a, an artifact of early vectors or something like that but very very square ended lines without any width variation or anything it's not it's not drawn by an artist so much the uh, little picture of sonic there no it looks like a piece of clip art and we'll see that on every cover where um sonic is not the star is that right i never yeah. noticed that before that that's when they put it up <laughs> yeah, I mean, it'll all it always says starring sonic the hedgehog sure but this little picture shows up if sonic's not the actual character on the cover hey. which obviously comparatively is rare instances but uh, yeah that's clever that's a good idea um, but yeah it is rare and it's happened so so early here we are on the fourth and and we have an a shinobi illustration i would say joe musashi glaring at us with his sword right up that thing where the ninja holds the sword up in front of their face dead on to the camera so it's just a thin line with the customary circle of shine around it with spikes coming out love that stuff and behind him a man is jumping towards him done up like the Monkey King. We'll find out what that's all about later on. It's also advertised that this is, of course, Britain's official Sega comic, all new, all action, all Sega, with Golden Axe and Wonder Boy, plus Shinobi in the claws of the Monkey King. And news and reviews and charts in the Q-Zone and more. We're going to go through all of it, Chris. We are! And you know what I noticed with the date as well, that that put yeah. my birthday was sandwiched exactly one week <laughs> between issue four and issue five. 17th. <laughs> oh, so no STC for your birthday then? No birthday. Well, I wasn't buying it yet at that point. Oh, so, that's uh, right. Yeah. Perhaps we had if you two issues to go before I was on, maybe that would all have changed if it had come out on your birthday. Oh well, no, because maybe. you don't get a birthday present that was bought that day, do you? No, I suppose not. No, not well, not unless it was somebody who was really running late. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but wouldn't it have been? They, they, yes, imagine that scenario where some family member is like, "Oh no, I haven't got him anything." rushes past the newsagent what can i get what can i get this will do and like that did actually turn out to be a lifelong obsession and therefore yeah, a very right. good present i would have been yeah he would have actually really appreciated it <laughs> so what's in the control zone dave control zone. we are going to meet megadroid 
We have a little welcome screen here, and remember listeners, every issue on the inside front cover is the Control Zone, hosted by Megadroid, an illustration in the top right corner of a yellow robot resembling a Mega Drive turned into a robot, um, with a welcome screen, which is a little box with some text in that the editor has treated us to this time, and then something else in the middle, and then on the right, the Sega charts, and uh, and at the bottom, credits and printing information and uh, stuff like that. Well... There's not much to talk about in the welcome screen, uh, really. Uh, he's just mentioning that there's been a lot of letters and pictures uh, coming in. And uh, and there's a big picture of Megadroid there with his with his hand up as if to... I don't know, is, it, is he going to give us a high five? Because if he is, it looks like he's going to give us such an overarm shove. Yeah, I but, don't know. I've always wondered exactly what that pose was supposed to mean for Megadroid. Yeah. It looks like he was going to stop in the name of love or, or That's push exactly or a high what it five looks like. or something, you know. I think hey, it, whoa, stop! Read this page first! That'll be what it is. I bet that's what it is, because it, it, it could just be a hand-up little wave, like, hello, but it's yeah. the fact that he's putting all his weight on his mm. forward leg, and, like, really, his shoulder is going into it. Go for you. Yeah. I suppose he, he specifically points out that there have been so many letters and things sent, because at issue four, we were probably really hitting the point where these were yes. being written after they had received a lot of genuine letters and, and feedback. Yes, especially since there would have been nothing... Uh, Unmainstream about the act of reading this because again I, I i feel the need now and then to sort of explain the situation with british comics and how they differ to american comics but with american comics there's always been rather a lot of them you know you've got your heroes you've got your archies there's a fair few to choose from in the uk there was a decent amount but we're only talking about sort of i don't know as many comics as there are well, newspapers say, which is plenty, but it's not loads and loads and loads. So anything that's coming out regularly is pretty much going to get correspondence of some sort, especially back in the day when that was a thing that kids tended to do, was to in write in. In the pre-internet age, of course. As mm. well. Yeah, and it was a lot of effort. It's not as if it was any easier to write a letter then than it is now, but I don't know. We just sort of did it. Our, our mums, at least in my case, my mum, was liable to go to the post office quite regularly. And so why not? Why not post off a letter to some magazine or other? Um, you didn't realise it was costing her money? No. Uh, <laughs> no, absolutely not. So, um, we have this, the bit in the middle, uh, this fortnight, is called Meet Megadroid. And uh, we're going to find out who Megadroid is. Um, and, and it's name, designation, operating system, stuff like that. So I'll just read you this. Here's who Megadroid is. Name, Megadroid. Designation, multimedia, multipurpose, editorial, server droid with enhanced graphics and sound capabilities. Operating system, classified prototype, memory and storage, classified, but known to run into gigabytes. Ooh. Runs right into the gigabytes. Can you, Man, can you, can you conceive? conceive of that? Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, Compatible with all current and future Sega formats. So, both of them. Um, (laughs) And then we have Origin. And we're given an Origin story that actually runs pretty close to what we're soon going to discover is Robotnik's Origin. Created during a freak accident in a highly secret research lab, all that is known is that a bolt of lightning struck the lab during a test run of an advanced artificial intelligence program. A nearby Mega Drive, used by the scientists during off-duty breaks, seems to have been caught up in the resulting blast. It then implies that in his first moments of life, Megadroid ran rampage and killed all of the scientists. That's a, a grim read. You think I'm editorialising a little bit? Well, let me let me run this past you. Okay, so mysteriously, the scientists and all their notes and computer records have since disappeared. Foul play is suspected. Now, 
I feel like it implies the government covered it up. It was the nineties. Government conspiracies came and, and Do you know what? You've 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 very easily convinced me, which doesn't make for very good radio, but you have. I mean also I, I don't want to believe that Megadroid murdered everybody. That doesn't seem right. I was always on board with the concept that the government is who covered it up. Um, but you've introduced me to the concept that it was them who done it as well. So okay, yeah. It's just that this this creature came alive, this robot came alive doesn't know why all of the scientists that created it are now mysteriously dead, and has now been relegated to a janitorial position in a lowly office somewhere. I don't know. I feel as if there could be more to the story than we know. But it says Megadroid must have escaped the fate of the scientists somehow. I don't know how. Could it be that he killed them all and ran away? <laughs> well, now you're starting to convince me! <laughs> um... I've got one more little bit of evidence in a minute. All that is known is that one day, he appeared in the STC offices with his massive databanks of information on Sega games and characters he was immediately put to work, cleaning the desks and scrubbing the floors. To this day, Megadroid is convinced that he is undervalued, underused, and better than any of the humans, or humes, running STC. Favourite comic? What do you think? Favourite food? Plastic, aluminium, glass. He has built-in recycling units. That's nice. Yeah. Very. We were very recycling conscious in those days, weren't we? In the 90s, we? yeah. Yeah, if only we'd actually bothered, perhaps. <laughs> we would have long enough left on this earth to finish this podcast series. Um, mm. <laughs> Another grim one. <laughs> Favourite Sega game of the moment? Well, let's see. W what would someone who was created and then seconds later murdered everyone involved in his creation, what would his favourite game be? It's Flashback. <laughs> Which I read in the PTSD sense. Um, I read that it's number one in the charts this week as a new entry, so that's probably why it's his favourite. Anything worth uh, noting in the charts, do you think? Other than Flashback, of course. Flashback in at number one, Fatal Fury in at number three on the Mega Drive. I notice Echo the Dolphin re-entering at number four hey. for the Mega Drive, probably uh, got to be a result of one of those cheap reissues that was in the news zone an that's issue or two right. ago. That's right, and it wasn't Fatal Fury uh, in the news zone as well, and that's presumably a new release. Yeah, I can't remember. Was it, it Final was. Fight or Fatal Fury? Oh, yes, it was probably Final Fight. You see, this is the thing, I don't know the difference between any of these games. I don't, yeah, Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat were the only two I knew back in the day. I know the difference between them, but yes, I, don't, I, know, what, I know which one Streets of Rage is, but quite oh, yes. honestly, if you showed me a screenshot of any of this sort of game, I, I, I'd believe you if you told me it was Streets of Rage. I think I'd be much the same, yeah. We do have down in the Game Gear charts, uh, Mick and Mac Global Gladiators showing up. Are you, are you, are you ready? Yeah! Cool! Are you ready? Awesome! Yeah! That's a, a fairly maligned game because it is a uh, McDonald's tie-in game. Yes, yes, I remember that one. But I thought it was flipping brilliant. Uh, I only had the demo and on the Amiga, but good heavens, it was great fun. Loads of fun. Yes, I, I'm sure I must have played it on the Mega Drive. Yeah. Certainly on the Amiga, it had an extremely snazzy soundtrack. I don't know what the Mega Drive version was like, but it was a... You were a little fella and you had a gun and it shot out, um, I think, green slime? Or you were trying to stop the green slime, one of those. Delicious McDonald's cheeseburgers. Yeah, nothing to do with McDonald's in it, though, except that I think when you finished the... Le oh, yeah, you the, the collectibles, the coins and rings in it, were little McDonald's M's. And at the end of it, uh, Ronald McDonald himself waved you past the finishing line with a cry of, Yeah, you did it! Sonic!
Day of the Badniks, written by Nigel Kitching, with art... Who? Save it, save it. <laughs> with art by Ed Hillier and letters by Elliot Fell. In this issue, Dr. Robotnik sends a Badnik double of Sonic to destroy star posts all across the Emerald Hill Zone in order to cut off access to the Special Zone where he's establishing his new headquarters. Young Mobians Ruff and Stripes stumble onto his plot and are captured and turned into Badniks themselves. When Sonic tries to battle this robot double, poorly timed assistance by Tails results in the blue blur being captured and sealed inside the robot. But fortunately, our hero is just too cool to be affected by the Badnik programming. And using his new Badnik guys, Sonic is able to get close to Robotnik and force the Doctor to free him and the others. Hey, that's good. That's a good little summation there. I like that a lot. This, then, is the first script by Nigel Kitching. The man, the legend, Nigel Kitching. Yeah. The man, the flan. So prior to this, Nigel Kitching was probably not a name that anybody reading the comic would have known. He'd done a variety of stories for a lot of those British comics with those dynamic one-word titles that you've never heard of from the 1980s, like Energy, Trident, and Saviour. But Sonic the Comic is the work that he would essentially become best known for. Um, he starts out with just this little one-off, but he would become one of the two main writers who wrote the biggest, most epic stories, uh, who is probably you know, best remembered as the biggest architect of the entire comic. And, as we'll see as we go through here, he, he hits the ground running. There's no messing about with this issue. Yeah, this is a good comic by a good writer. Ed Hillier, who's that? Well, uh, he is better known today um, under the pseudonym of Ilya, I-L-Y-A, all capital letters. I believe that's French for he is. I guess so. <laughs> I think it's also a Russian name, oh. Ilya. Oh. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. He, he has done a lot of work in uh, comics, I have to be honest and say, that I've never read or heard of. Skid Marks, Ballast, The Mammoth Book of Best New Manga, The Clay Dreaming, It's Dark in London... And uh, most recently, How to Draw Comics uh, from Lom Art in 2016. So he's still out there and he's still working. Yeah. And he would um, do some more work for Sonic the Comic. So this is not a one-off. This is not the last we would see of him on this series. And um, uh, good too, because it's... it's um, I don't quite know how to describe his work on this issue, because it's a very dynamic first page, isn't it? Yeah. I love this, um, this Badnik Sonic design that he's created. I mean, I have to be honest and say that it and the other Badniks that Ruff and Stripes get turned into, they don't look like Sonic robots. They don't really look like they uh, belong in the Sonic world. That's absolutely true, yeah. But it's a very dynamic, sort of uh, kinetic design. That's right. And his renditions of Tails and Sonic are quite loose, not hugely different from, I've forgotten the name of the artist who drew the very first issue of the series, not hugely different from that. I agree with that, yeah. We have the same sense here of someone who is a good comics artist, struggling with a little bit with what was at the time a fairly new style of art that Sonic brought in. Um, and so, uh, most of the time he copes perfectly well. There's a couple of side-on views of Sonic's face where he doesn't seem quite sure where the eyes should go. Yeah. Uh, generally, otherwise, his Sonic and Tails are very on-model, though. Yeah. The proportions are all there. They're all right. It's good. But just like with the uh, robots to reuse a phrase you used in a previous uh, episode, Dave, his rendition of the Emerald Hill Zone does look like uh, somebody maybe described what the Emerald Hill Zone is supposed to look like to him. Yes, although it does have a lot more of a an authentic look to it, at least when a uh, set piece is introduced. So the f I, I think, for example, the first panel, you've got a loop there, and it looks kind of like the loops in the game, except 
It's well, no. Now that you say it again, yes, you're right. It's as if it's been described. You see, it's bricks instead of checkerboards. Well, the wall closest to us is indeed bricks. There are there is a checked pattern on the loop in the background, but the loop has a curved top to it rather than the customary flat sort from the game. So yes, that that kind of is what someone would draw if they were described the loops quite well, including the fact of the the checkerboard pattern on it. The um the brick walls and the pillars and the waterfalls make me think of the aquatic ruins on personally. Which suggests to me that the artists were kind of left a little bit high and dry in terms of uh, reference material. I think maybe I think you're right, yeah. I, I suspect they perhaps had a mega drive in the office and, and anyone was allowed to go on it, but not all of them were able to do the travelling, perhaps. <laughs> it's like when Robotnik appears in this issue uh, like goodness knows why he is dressed the way he is because he's wearing mm. a, an all over uh, metal suit with jet boots yeah, and, and a top, a, a hat, top and hat and a cape yeah. like an evil robot ringmaster and it's bizarre but it's damnably snazzy it's real good I'm surprised they yeah. didn't use it again did they ever use it again not to my memory just as a sort of battle suit you know and he's got the the features that we've called out in previous issues those horrifying grill teeth and the empty black eyes you know it's it's a genuinely uh creepy menacing looking robotnik it's quite successful when we say the grill teeth by the way what uh, of course if you were to draw a snarling mouth then an easy way to draw the teeth is simply to draw one horizontal line and several vertical lines right that's your basic way of drawing snarling teeth when we say the grill teeth in the case of Dr. Robotnik, there was a tendency to draw his whole mouth with only the vertical lines. And I'm, this must have come from a piece of art that they were given um, must as an example, because that's that's been done a couple of times now. And I can't, off the top of my head, think of which drawing of Robotnik they're referencing, because when I try, I just get that image from issue one, the first drawing of him, because that mm. is seared forever into my... Uh, nightmares and i mean that as a compliment i think that's a, that's a, a chilling and good uh drawing um but yeah the robot suit when i was going through this and making my notes i actually thought that they just thought he was a robot and drew him as a robot but but then nigel does explicitly mention that it's clothes he's wearing yeah well so, you wonder if that's one of those situations that we've observed in past issues where a thing uh, was written and drawn and then maybe they uh, tweaked the the dialogue over the top of it to just explain oddities or forge connections between other stories that's very possible it could certainly be that um in which case i kind of want it to be that because it means that uh, ed hillier here was just just again this is something i like just did what he wanted and <laughs> just drew a better, like, robotic. No, I'm going to make him a bit better. He can have a top hat and a cape. Because they've got nothing to do with what it says in the script. It just says he's got, no. like, a metal suit on. Yeah. And then I'll make him a robot. Like, yeah. It, it's cool. It's really cool. <laughs> and he's got spiky fingers. Like, the, he really has kind of leaned into the, the idea of Robotnik, you know? So, Nigel opens this comic by immediately creating two original characters. Ruff and Stripes. A, uh, a little fluffy dog and a badger, respectively. And I don't know what that says, but it says something, that Nigel's very first act on Sonic the Comic was to create a couple of his own characters. Because I want to carefully say this, because if I say it wrong, it'll sound like it, I'm criticising it. But Nigel really took STC almost for his own. And he was allowed to do this. This wasn't an act of sabotage, but he took it in his own direction. He doesn't do this yet, mind you, but when he kind of really sets his roots down in the comic, he... um. Uh, as you said, is one of the two main writers who steers the comic, but Nigel is the one who steered it with a mind towards sort of longer stories and continuity. Is that fair to say, do you think? 
Well, later on in the run, Lou does get his fair shake on the bigger, more far-reaching stories, too. Yeah. Not so much of a serious business story here, but he's laying out some stuff that he wants to do straight away. Oh, blasts in with the big ideas yeah. out of the game. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Like, I mean, the idea of the star posts being the way to access the special mm. zone right out of the games, yep. but not something from Stay Sonic, as far as I can recall. And if it is, it's just mentioned in the sense that this is what it is in the games. Yeah, no, Nigel yeah. really takes it and moulds it into his own thing. And this would be something that we would, yeah, we would see this recur uh, regularly all through the run in some of the biggest stories. And the idea of Robotnik using the Special Zone as his headquarters is essentially just uh, set up for, uh, what, the, the not the next kitching story, but the one after that, which is the one that flips the whole comic on its head. <laughs> he is just... Uh, in, boom, str- kicked the doors off the hinges and was like, right, this is what I'm doing. Everybody out of my way. Yeah, yeah pretty much. It was a power move and it, he deserved to make it. He was he he brought this idea and he was good enough to, to carry it through years and years of comics. So here he is with a robot Sonic. Ahead of his time. Well, this is the thing. I mean, around this time is when Sonic CD is in development. And when it comes out, in what isn't very many issues of STC's time... No, um, not so many. Nigel will be given the job of writing the real, if you like, robot Sonic story. And it's a moment in our lives when we get there. But we'll get there when we do. So first of all, we have Rough and Stripes, these two little... Mobians, little animals, and and these are really maybe for the first time in the comic really uh, drawn the way they would look yes. if they were little animals coming out of robots in the game. So these are two original characters, and here they're very conversational. They're very they feel real, and then we see the robot Sonic, who they mistake for the real Sonic, because and I, and I quite like how there's lots of things where. Someone who doesn't look at all like the other character is mistaken for the other character. And of course, in Sonic lore, a big example of this is uh, Shadow, the hedgehog in Sonic Adventure 2. But also they've done this with Metal Sonic a couple of times where people are like, oh, it's Sonic. Oh, it must be Sonic, even though it doesn't look anything like him. Nigel acknowledges that. He kind of makes a joke out of it. And he yeah. doesn't go like, well, who else would have spikes like that? Who else would spin in circles like that? So they're, they're sort of applying a kind of sideways silly logic to mistaking him for Sonic. I, I like the idea that perhaps um, when we see things from their POV, the badnik is silhouetted yes. by the glare of the star post being uprooted. So maybe they all, all that they do see is the, is the spiked silhouette and come to the conclusion that it's Sonic based on that and then run away immediately. Yeah. And so, yeah, the robot Sonic tears up a star post. Now, if for reasons I can't understand you are listening to this and you don't know much about Sonic the games... Uh, we may as well tell you that the star post was in Sonic's 2 and 3 and Knuckles, the checkpoint marker, mm. which once you've passed it, that's where you will respawn when you when you are killed. But also, get enough rings and you can jump into them. And that's how you get to the special zone. And Nigel has used that as a... As a what, here's what I'm trying to think of. There's a Marvel version of this, isn't there? That Marvel comics have a special zone warp of confusion weird upside downy world don't they can uh, you think what that's called the, uh when the negative zone is that what it's called i don't know because oh, i'm not a big enough reader of those I, things. i'm not sure that's the first one that comes to mind but certainly there's... certainly in big action comics of the time there was a strange land that you access in some way and uh, nigel's gone right that's what we're doing here the special zone and well not just nigel because of course we have to remember mark miller made reference to this previously although he had him go through a ring the special zone yeah in the sonic one style 
is yeah the special zone is going to be this sideways dimension that you can slip into via something and nigel's gone with the star post because that's what it is in sonic 2 which was the most recent sonic game Mm -hmm. and he's straight away going in with almost the physics of that he's having the robot rip this out of the ground and we find that it's connected to the ground by wires so that deactivates it the idea being that uh, as we hear from robotnik later he's now set up camp in the special zone and uh which we will later learn is called the Warp of Confusion. That's what they called it in some of the back matter for Sonic 1. Really? Yeah, yeah, because uh, that term is used in the, the Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog cartoon as well. Oh, yeah, it did once, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, the Warp of... Well, because, uh, like, originally, originally, and this is going back to Stay Sonic yeah. here as well, I remember that the Sonic 1 special stages were presented as being reality warps that Dr. Robotnik had actually sealed the Chaos Emeralds in to keep them out of Sonic's hands in low orbit, in fact. Oh! And uh, we talked in episode 1 about Sonic the Hedgehog in the fourth dimension, and it uh, followed through on that intent as well by showing Robotnik recovering the emeralds after he was created. Um, (laughs) But Sonic the comic uh, changed it up so that the Sonic 1 special stages which you accessed through the giant rings were the same special zone as the one you accessed through the star posts. It's just this big muddled up universe of strangeness and uh, one of the ways in, the key way in, and I think the only way in moving forwards is the star posts and here it is ripped up because Robotnik is trying to prevent anyone other than himself getting through presumably he's built a fortress around one and that's the one he uses or something like that is this our first star post in the comic or have we had one before i think it is our first yeah oh well there we are um we have a first on page two it's our first example of what i think of as sort of normal sonic and tails life in that sonic is running his own tails is trying to keep up and talk to him and sonic is not letting him do it yeah here nigel introduces that dismissive attitude that we've discussed before. Sonic just appears to be annoyed by the presence of Tails in quite a quite an aggressive way here. What do you think about this? Yes, I, I, it did uh, certainly strike me as a little more aggressive than what we would come to, yes. come to see from the pair. Don't hassle me, kid. I'll take care of it. We have Tails chasing after him going, wait, wait. And Sonic's going, look, make it quick. He's, you know, visibly dismissing him, you know, nose in the air. Talk to the hand pose. And then the great little touches that the text doesn't draw attention to where when Tails finally does get him to stop, he stops in a shallow pool of water which boils around his (laughs) roaring hot feet. I didn't even notice that. And I was looking at the steam. I was thinking, oh, what? I wonder what that is. Wow, yeah, that's that great. Neat little touch. I love that. <laughs> well spotted. I like um, whenever the pair of them then go to the marble zone. Tails has this look of... It's it, it's the first implication that we would see a little bit later was that sometimes Tails could give it as well as take it. <laughs> yes. That's the start of page four where um, Sonic goes, well, no doubt about it. Starpost is missing and Tails just has this disdainful look. He's got this little dismissive look going, yeah, like, well done, genius. The Starpost is gone. Yeah, well noticed, okay? Of course, then he immediately gets it thrown back at him whenever the robot turns out to still be here, as Tails was predicting it would not be. So on page three, this is where we're shown uh, Ed Hillier's original creation badniks, which are... Like you say, they they could have been nasty robots in anything. They're not specifically Sonic-looking ones. Um, Just sort of robot-y robots that are just spikes and bits and bobs. Um, We have a kind of three-headed Cerberus dog kind of a robot, and then we have a a sort of just a a cage robot that's got spiky stuff. I mean, I feel like it's supposed to be a badger. Like, the idea is that, you know, the dogs become a dog and that one's become a badger, but... Yes, I can see that. It's not not quite there, you know? 
I see it. It's vague, but yes, it's sort of themed. Yeah, it's black and white, um, basically. It's really the only tale in it. Well, and there's a sort of triangle theme to it. But the but the interesting point here is that when poor old Ruffin's stripes are sucked into these badniks, it says organic battery successfully installed, and this going forward will always be what it's called from now on. And the idea is that they are in some way powering the robots they never go as far as to say anything like you know they're connected up to their blood supply by tubes or anything <laughs> but you are left to draw your own conclusions as to exactly in what way but they are being used somehow and it's mm. it's an, an unpleasant thought and that that is the idea and that is the fate that befalls sonic whenever he goes up against his his robot double Thanks to Tails, God love him. At this point, the Badnik Sonic, which we don't ever really get a name for, I don't think. Yeah. Um, he does something odd. He kind of turns into. It's illustrated as he curls up into a ball, but then his face goes onto the front of what looks like yeah. a, a spiked wrecking ball type thing. But the thing is, I, I I appreciate this bit because it's acting very like a end of level boss, isn't it? It, I suppose it is, yeah, yeah. It shoots out all of its spikes and you have to dodge them and then it'll uncurl and come in for its next attack. And when it uncurls, there's this little shudder marks around its uh, spines, which is because it's uncurling, but also you can read it as the new spines coming in, you know. Oh, obviously, yes. Ready for the next attack. So, yeah, this is... Just like a boss, yeah. I never really made that like comparison, yeah, yeah. And, and by the way, in the picture at the start of uh, what I think is page five, yeah, um, very good picture of Sonic there. That's the, one of the most on-model Sonics I think we've had in the comics so far. That's the one where he's being hit by the spikes? He's being hit by the spikes, and he's yeah. got his... You know, it, the angle's right, of course, and he's got that little lump at the side. It's just a very on-model Sonic, and I, I don't know, I appreciate that, because the artists are having to, as I say, work hard to match a, a character design that might have felt a bit strange to them at this point because of the blend of Eastern and Western ideas that went into it. Um, yeah. But this picture makes it look like it made perfect sense all along. Yeah, as I say, it's a little surprising that we didn't see too much more of him that I recall, Ed Hillier, because he, um, mm. outwardly, the work we see in this issue is perhaps not as immediately artistically as impressive as Casanova's art from last issue, but it's definitely and immediately got a sort of a stronger grip on the character of Sonic himself. And then... Tails attempts to help Sonic by doing a spin attack towards the Badnik at the same time Sonic is doing a spin attack towards him and they collide and Sonic says Nice going, pixel brain. Perhaps a throwaway remark at the time, a fun little joke. You know, what insult would Sonic say to Tails? Pixel brain is a little nod to the fact that he's from a game but or a gamey sort of world. But that becomes the de facto insult that Sonic says to Tails. And the fact that there is one tells you something about their relationship in STC, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, that's that's it kind of sums it all up in one, doesn't it, really? We talked in our very first episode about the attitude that Sonic has in Sonic the Comic and how he's kind of like the platonic ideal of disaffected 90s cool who acted like he didn't care about the things and the people around him. And uh, if that don't sum it all up right there. Yeah. I think in a, I think in another comic we might see a, a gradual progression between this initial dismissive attitude with, with Tails occupying an almost Amy Rose in Sonic CD-esque uh, uh, position here where he's kind of pester, pestering him, following him around. And then you would imagine that over, the, over time Sonic would warm to him until they were best bros or whatever. Um, but actually it's more like uh, Sonic is forced to become this reluctant leader of a group of people and he never quite shows that he cares about them, but it's clear that he does. I think it's done very well. Mm. Anyway, we're not there yet. And so Robotnik shows up in his extremely snazzy new outfit. We get, you know, 
a relatively swift defeat. The uh, the usual, I'll get you for this, you blue pincushion type stuff. Mm-hmm. And then a kind of a, a final illustration promising further adventures like this. You know, Sonic shaking his fist up at the sky and all the little animals snarling or hiding behind him. And, and Robotnik threatening that he has big plans. Yes. Which is not an empty threat, as we know, because Nigel... Well, as we know, because uh, Nigel Kitching will get right back into this business very, very soon. Yeah, so this is Nigel threatening that he has made big plans. Doors <laughs> off the hinges, get out of the way. And it kind of almost serves as a sort of a conclusion. This, I, There's something about this panel, this last panel. It doesn't have a border. It has this, you know, the, the border of the panel is kind of defined by the shapes of the people and the foliage in it. And it has Sonic there making this statement about how he's going to stand up to Robotnik's future plans. Uh-huh. This almost forms a sort of a conclusion to the light, fluffy, one-offsy era of STC. Unfortunately, it it doesn't appear at the end of it. (laughs) No, I know, right? It's like, basically, if this had been in issue six, um, you know, coinciding with the end of most of the other serials in the comic, and and Sonic the comic had not been a success, and that was it for it, it wouldn't have been a terrible place to leave it. No. Refusal! Wonder Boy in Monster World for the Master System, Streets of Rage 2 for the Game Gear, and uh, one I had never heard of, Time Gal for the Mega CD. assume based on the review that it's another Dragon's Lair type animated video game where you tap the controls in time. That's absolutely right and this time Dragon's Lair of course being the most famous example of this where you have this oh. short animated film that you press buttons during. This is the equivalent but but anime. So you have this anime girl who's jumping through time and appearing in different time periods which I believe come up randomly so you just flash to a different time zone and it's... And it's uh plays in a random order it's an arcade game and in the arcade it's fully animated and you can just watch the the animation play presumably off laser disc or something similar but here it's uh, as with the uh, intro to sonic cd will soon be it's kind of reduced to a sort of pixelated graphics-y version of itself but still you know fully animated quite impressive to look at and this time with an english uh, voiceover which the arcade game oh, no, no, no. Uh, didn't oh, have okay. um the only other thing here is um, this is a review of Wonder Boy and Monster World, um, the the one that uh, we were discussing previously. Uh, but here released for the Master System, even though it's the same as the Mega Drive release, which I get the sense had already been out. Um, listed here as a driving game. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, you, that's the bit you kind of scan past, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? Wonder Boy and Monster World game type driving game driving. Whoops. And it isn't. Oh well. The other thing that gave me a chuckle on this page was the graves, the 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 con section on Streets of Rage Two, where the cons are described as nothing but fighting action all the way. <laughs> is that the raves as well? Nope. No, the raves are great graphics, sound, playability, and presentation. Apparently, it's bad that you do nothing but have fighting action all the way. Weird. Okay. Um, oh so gosh, I, you know, I, I've just realised Time Gal's yeah. only got sixty percent. Yes, they didn't like it. Well, that's, that's not harsh. 
Well, it's because there's almost nothing to do. Again, we have one of these tech demo uh, mm. games. All of these are written by Tony Takushi, who we're going to hear ag- from again later. Um, I've, I don't think I've mentioned before the STC rating system. Oh, no, I don't think you did, no. It's explained here what the percentages actually mean. And we've, we've you know, wondered before. On the first episode, I speculated that you, they w- wouldn't be allowed to score anything under 70. But no... Sure enough, as you say, Time Gal has 60% here. So we have a little guide. Under 40%, that means Yawnsville. Uh, 40 to 70% is Normalsville. I think that's a broad range. I was going to say, very wide range. That's a rating system that's actually sort of uh, predicated on the belief that 50% or getting about, you know, two and a half out of five or whatever makes it average. Which is how, as far as I'm concerned, you know, a rating system should work. Yes, absolutely. But in this day and age, it's not, because you've got to get uh, uh, 70 is the the crap score. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It really is really silly. But in this comic, 70 to 80%, that means it's fun city. Well, that seems like a perfectly fair analysis of something that would get that score to me. Yeah, and uh, this being an era when we did... uh, append things with city if we wanted to emphasize them it was also an era when we played video games to have fun <laughs> 80 to 90 percent that's big time city not really sure what that means and finally over 90 mega city one yes <laughs> On the next page, uh, we have a full-page advertisement for the Micro Machines game. Oh, Micro Machines! Yeah! yeah. New on Mega Drive. The ultimate challenge has arrived for the Sega Mega Drive, racing miniature boats, cars, and choppers over sandpits, snooker tables, and breakfast mats. Uh, Micro Machines, uh, very small toy cars that uh, that came out. A, a, a no-brainer winner of a formula. Take something that all yeah. little boys wanted, toy cars, make them a thing that makes toys better, make them little yep and there you have the you can take you can you could fit like four or five of them into your pocket and the teacher wouldn't even know you had them <laughs> you, you could be zipping them around on and what would you do you'd zip them around on your school desk or if you're at home on your normal desk and that is what the video game adaptation that was the conceit of it it was one of those top-down races i believe last issue i compared mm. a game in the review zone to micro machines because this really made its mark as as far as I'm concerned, the, the, the most memorable ex- example of this, because you were driving over rulers between tables, playing cards. Yeah, I remember it well. You were dodging spilled Cheerios. Now, I feel like that was one you could have four players on. Yes, I think so. I feel like that might have been one, because I talked in the previous issue about how I had a multi-tap. I feel like that was one that there was a lot of brotherly fights about. Yes, I believe so. No mention of that here, though. But I still. I might be wrong. I might be wrong. Maybe it's in a review zone in a future issue. We'll get some more details. Let's find out. But first, Shinobi. One, two, three. The Fear Pavilion Part Four. We have the usual cast. It's written by Alan McKenzie, art by John Howard, and letters by Ellie Deville. And this episode, Masashi continues his descent through the Neo Zeeds Pavilion, and in an arena patterned after a Peking opera house, confronts his next opponent, who wears the costume of the famous trickster of Chinese legend, the Monkey King. But Masashi is unfazed by the king's monkey-style kung fu and employs a little trickery himself to claim victory and continue his mission. We really uh, settle into the pattern of the Fear Pavilion with this one after uh, last issue 
issue, like part two set up what it was going to be, descending through the pagoda and facing off against different masters on each level. Previous issue was our first master and this is our second one now, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, funnily enough, all done up in, in uh, Chinese trappings rather than uh, Japanese ones with yeah. a Peking opera and um, the Monkey King from, uh, from Chinese legend, from Journey to the West. And he is a practitioner of Kung Fu, the Chinese art. And monkey-style Kung Fu is a real style of Kung Fu that is accurately represented here. Oh, really? And does it... Yeah. Does it come from opera like it says here is that a th is it a theatrical art i don't think it comes uh, from opera no because uh, i mean the, the monkey king is simply a great figure from chinese myth like uh, uh, well yes sun, sun wukong the monkey king is probably well, the single most famous figure from chinese popular culture and mythology probably so i think they just decided to uh, represent that by having him done up as an opera yeah well i wonder if because uh, i can well imagine that these operas did take place and that perhaps they probably did use martial arts in them because it's a form of performance so i can i can imagine this is accurate i only know one opera uh, about the Monkey King. Uh, it goes, uh, Born from an egg on, on a, a mountain, mountain top. top. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of my favourite pieces of opera. Uh, that is how certainly most of us in the UK would be familiar with Monkey. <laughs> but uh, again, as with uh, the previous issue, this is very much just a straightforward uh, five-page fight as Musashi takes yeah. on the Monkey King. Um, it lacks in any of the uh, like the unique um, trappings, say, of the previous issue where the fight was all done in darkness. The fight is, again, mostly carried out in silence, and as is common with the Shinobi strips, there's an extensive amount of narration. But the, the real purpose, it seems, of, of this issue uh, is to, via the narration, introduce us to the idea that there are um, four masters at the top of the Neo Zed who uh, who all their assassins fear, four mm. ninjas with elemental powers. Gee, I wonder if we'll be seeing them in the future. <laughs> I really like, on page three, I'm just going to read out the captions because I like this. I just think this is nicely written. It is as Musashi thought. No warrior of the neo Zed would ever betray his ninja masters. Indeed, what makes a neo Zed fighter utterly fearless is the sure knowledge that no foe could ever be as cruel as the sinister ones who rule the neo Zed. In the neo Zed, there's only one crime, failure, and only one punishment, slow and terrible death. It is the fear of that punishment at the hands of the four that drives any neo Z assassin ever onwards. And that, it just, I mean, that's straight out of sort of, you know, kung fu stuff, isn't it? Yeah. But it really takes a, a, a nothing character like this painted fighter and it gives him a motivation without us really needing to know anything about him. In, in fact, when he's defeated, he sort of, you know, reaches out a hand and sheds a single manly tear, presumably because he knows the things that are about to be done to him for his failure. Because this character actually doesn't speak. Uh, he, he literally just makes monkey screeches, which gives Musashi no reason to speak to him as well, because he knows that uh, he won't give up any info. So uh, after making one... Musashi has one line of dialogue in the issue. He, he attempts to get the guy to speak. Guy chooses to fight him instead. So the rest of the fight's done in silence and monkey screeches. And it's a great contrast to the previous issue where the, the holy man that he fought, the monk, was a perfectly talkative type. And um, it also sets up where things will go into the into the fifth issue as well. Sets up um, not just the case of introducing the elemental four, but also the, the idea of how the Zed works and um, keeping your lip zipped and everything. And that will uh, that's important information that will inform the next chapter, which we will talk oh. about next issue. Oh, really? Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to that. And also, um, there's a, a bit of variety here, because uh, this is our... I suppose technically you could say this about the holy man from the previous issue, but this this time, the room is themed. Mm. Um, 
as much as the the boss is themed you know there wasn't much you couldn't see much of the previous room it was mostly darkness and it was very much the guy who was the theme whereas here you have this whole i mean you they're in a theater and there's a whole stage that's set up for this performance to take place on uh, not a lot of it actually does they kind of fight in the uh, the area where the seating would be but uh, still it's interesting to have a themed room it really is moving between visibly different set pieces and 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 they're not just different to look at they're different in key ways like the fact that this time the room plays a big part in it and there's no dialogue and yeah it's this is a good comic i i kind of i really do wish i'd picked up that uh, collected trade of it because it i think it would be more at home there well like like all sonic the comic serials it it forms a complete story over its six chapters but it's also um a talent not uniquely, but predominantly possessed by British creative teams when it comes to comics, also able to tell very functional, complete chapters in a very limited amount of page space, yeah. which is not something that, if you look at any um, attempt by big American comics companies to make uh, short-form anthology serial comics, they just don't stack up to the British stuff, because a lot of British writers you know, would have cut their teeth on uh, your, your Alan Moores, your Grant Morrison's, uh, would have cut their teeth on stuff like Future Shocks in 2000 AD, where you were telling a complete sci-fi story in two pages sometimes. News Zone. New Zone is all about one thing this week, which is the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago and all the hot new hardware and awesome arcades that came out of that. That's right. Before E3, there was CES, and uh, and it wasn't just games; it was other bits of electronics as well. But um, of course, games were at that time still kind of the the hot new gadget and uh, so it all went together and tony takushi who we saw over in the review zone is uh, on the ground for this one uh, this isn't a vicarious reporting sonic the comic had somebody on the on the scene to report so what have we got um well we've got an intro for ces itself which starts with the phrase the usa is a great place to be at any time debated i would contend that this time the current time is not an example of that diff um, diff diff we're only four episodes in we gotta win him over yet we've already badmouthed archie <laughs> up and down we're not gonna get nowhere if you keep this up oh sorry but yes no, <laughs> we really did think though in those days like british kids thought that america was this amazing utopia at the oh, time a strange far off wonderland where all the cartoons came from it was where they came from it's where they had more of them um if mm. you ever if your friend went to america they would come back with stories of stuff they saw there that wouldn't show up in the uk for like another two years i had a friend who mm. just as beauty and the beast was coming out in the cinemas my friend came back from uh, america Beauty and the Beast was out on video there, and Aladdin was out in cinemas. They were a whole film ahead of us. They had stuff we didn't have yet, and so it felt like they were kind of in the future. So in much in the same way that in the 90s, American teenagers idolized uh, Japan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well into the 2000s as well. Hmm. So what do we have? We have got, well, we've got a couple of, <laughs> well, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's not exactly a sterling lineup, is it? Because <laughs> the first thing we have talked yeah. about is the um, the Sega virtual reality headset. I mean, it's exciting at the time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, virtual reality in the 90s, vir I mean, virtual reality has really only become a, a thing that's kind of everywhere in, what, the last couple of years, really. Yeah. But in the 90s, like the idea of virtual reality, the idea of cyberspace yeah oh that was that was that was next level stuff back in the 90s that's right so obviously it was tremendously exciting but uh this 
didn't happen. No, it, it didn't. Happened. It never came out. So, I mean, at the, at the time you had, um, there was something called virtuality, mm. which you could see it in, presumably in certain arcades. I never saw it there. I only saw it as like um, demonstration models at uh, Games Master Live and things like that. But at this point, they're, they're trying to figure out how to bring it home. Um, and they're trying to do it. It says here for a US price of about $200. Well, that was contentious. I looked it up. It, it turned out that actually, no, the, the technology needed... It was almost impossible to do for $200, and that was what made it all fall apart. Um, the uh, interesting point is that uh, virtuality headsets were these huge things that stuck off your head like a giant beak. Um, and so uh, Sega decreed that theirs uh, should as closely as possible resemble Geordie LaForge's visor. Really? Because <laughs> they wanted it to look cool, and that was what cool looked like. like the future. Yeah. Um, they didn't manage to do that, but I, I do think the design that they were working with actually looked kind of cool. It was a bit RoboCop-ish, and mm. uh, yeah, it was like a sort of a red and black design that was more like big shades than anything else. But it just didn't happen, and they just didn't manage to bring it out, so this is all empty promises, I'm afraid. But one thing that did happen was the other item that's mentioned here, the activator. <laughs> the uh, The Sega... How would you describe it? The full body motion control? I mean, I don't know because I've never really seen one running. Is this the thing that's Oh, like... I've seen one, but really, yeah, I've never... Not, not, not in person. No. Don't go to... Calm down, calm down. Whoa, no, no, no. <laughs> no, no, I didn't live that kind of life. <laughs> Is... I've seen it on the internet. Is this the thing <laughs> that was like a big plastic ring that you stand inside? It was a big octagon and you stood inside it and it essentially shot up infrared beams, invisible ones, I think. And only certain games were designed to work with it, like your Street... I think Street Fighter mm -hmm. and Mortal combat were two that were designed to work with it and you would you know you would thrust your arms out and break the beams at like high and low positions to determine your your attacks and their directions yes and the idea is that uh, you would if you were playing a fighting game you would punch the air and the character would punch would punch a bit yeah. like a bit like what microsoft did a few years ago and they did make it well except it presumably i think all it was and the only way in which games like street fighter and mortal kombat were made quote-unquote to work with it i think it was just a six button joypad essentially but the buttons were mapped to higher and lower and different positions yeah, yeah. and so essentially although you were punching to punch it was actually that you were pressing an invisible and, yeah, button in the, in the air, air that happened yeah. to be mapped uh, well it it, uh, it was a disaster anyway it sold terribly yeah. uh, it was discontinued and i read that it's can widely considered one of the worst video game peripherals of all time <laughs> so there's a sterling news zone so far yeah that makes it sound as if it simply didn't work did it work or was it was I it just that people didn't like to stand up and move their arms about that i don't know but based on the fact that it was 1993 i'm gonna images didn't work very well <laughs> yeah video games eyes were bigger than their stomachs back in 1993 <laughs> yeah so uh speaking of eyes bigger than their stomachs we're back to sonic and uh sonic's coming out with an arcade game yeah which we, we it referred to these days as sega, sega sonic. sonic yeah arcade i don't really agree with that i think it probably just said sega sonic on it because that was they were just branding it i don't think that's the name of the game but whatever. well it's like sat am isn't it you got to figure exactly. out ways to refer to all these things that were just called sonic the hedgehog it's indeed and, and actually there was a little movement uh which uh i had something of a hand in starting uh, either that or i Ooh. started it entirely myself which is the way i remember it but let's assume i didn't where we we were using the word sega sonic on the internet to refer to sonic like as it was in Sonic's 1, 2, 3 and Knuckles, as opposed to, you know, Sat-AM or Sonic. STC. Yeah, so we were saying, like, well, in Sega Sonic, he's called Eggman, things like that. But, uh, yes, in the, originally it was the name stamped onto the arcade game. I believe 
some toys, like maybe the original uh, plush toys had that on their label as well. Did you ever play the arcade game, dude? No, I've never, I've never played so it much either, as no. seen it. No? I mean, there's a still of it here, but that's as far as we go. Yeah, they had one in London in the Sega World arcade theme park type place, but I, I didn't go in there. I walked past it uh, the one time I was in London when it was alive, and, uh, and I regret that. I bet you do. A new Sonic arcade game console with a 50-inch screen was on show at CES. The big news is that Sonic has a new sidekick in the game, brackets, no details as yet. Well, we have the details now. It was Ray, the flying squirrel. The flying squirrel. Who never appeared in STC, I don't think. No, no. No. You control via trackball and a button, either him or Sonic or together, as they battle Dr. Robotnik across five different lands. You have to collect rings for energy as you beat nasties or leap around. Beat nasties or leap around. (laughs) But not both. Never both. Never. The graphics are beautiful and the action fast and super slick. There are plenty of fun touches and the gameplay is fiendishly addictive. I, I don't know. I'm not sure Tony Takushi got a go on the game. I think he watched over someone's shoulder. If that. I mean, I think he may have just sneaked past taking a photo and moved on because plenty of fun touches and the gameplay is fiendishly addictive. Sounds like what you say. You if jump and collect rings and beat uh, Yeah, that's just yeah. what you say if you don't know what happens in the game. Congratulations on describing every video game ever, Tony. Um, And then we, <laughs> and then we hear about a, a simulator ride uh, along the lines of a Star Tours hosted by Michael Jackson and the headline is Wacko's Wild Ride. <laughs> I didn't get it for a minute and then I read that it was Michael Jackson hosted it and I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, 1990s. <laughs> yeah, just summarily referred to as Wacko there, uh, without any further explanation. Um, I, because we I've didn't ha- need it back then. Yep. I've had a look on uh, YouTube, and I can't tell if the there's plenty of footage of the of the game running. I say game. I don't know if it's a game. It's kind of he takes you through the tr- three training stages. It says here in the space shuttle you are controlling: engine ignition, combat training, and landing. And there is this implication that you're going through a certain amount of training, and then, of course, it turns out that you are the only one who can pilot the ship to safety in some kind of situation. But I don't know if you are. I don't know if there's anyone controlling this, or if it's just a Star Tours ride. Mm, a simulator. It calls it a simulator, but uh, yeah, it's hard to tell. Yeah. Is it real or is it CG2? Probably the most gobsmacking hardware item at the show was the indie racing simulation called Daytona NASCAR Grand Prix. And they talk about how advanced the 32-bit computer is. 32-bit? Damn! Oh my god, that was twice as many! Yeah. Um, Able to produce 300,000 textured polygons. Polygons! Oh my god, it's the future! I don't even know what to compare that to. I don't know what, like a PS4, how many polygons that runs. Not a clue. With up to 900,000 vector calculations per second, no idea. I know what that is, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to my 11-year-old mind. And it says, meaning, and it does explain, meaning virtual racing-style graphics, but far, far better. I couldn't tell whether the images in this game were computer-generated or actual TV footage. Yeah, chinny. I dispute that, Tony. (laughs) Um... But I haven't been able to find any footage of this to to see for myself because Daytona NASCAR Grand Prix are just, you know, I've I've put quotes around it, but I can't find anything that has those words in that order. Oh, well, there you go. So, no idea. Uh, Software on show, I won't read all of this, but it's basically... uh, Just a list of upcoming games. Aladdin in there, we mentioned it earlier. Yeah, so interested in that one because that's one of the good Mega Drive games that remain infamously good among the best absolutely amazing it says of Aladdin here with real graphics from the hit Disney film not quite but I I appreciate the point he's making and yes they are Eternal Champions one that would come to be well known by STC readers Mm. and Mortal Kombat 
with a C. Oh, yes. Whoops. Whoops. It does. I thought it looked a bit weird, but I couldn't tell why. Uh, short bursts down the side. We have um, a list of games where they really take their time telling you what each game actually is. Yeah. Um, clearly, they decided that kids are far more interested in the concept of a game than what game it is we're talking about. Yeah, um, it, took, I mean, it takes until the last paragraph before they name either of these two games. Um, yeah. um, General Chaos and Techno Clash, which I have never heard of either of them. No, me neither. I'm quite interested in General Chaos because it appears to be a sort of a comedy version of a almost like an RTS. You've got a screen with loads of little soldier guys all over it doing different things to each other. Again, I, I looked it up on YouTube and yes, there's lots of footage of them having quite comedic little fist fights and so on. Um, so I'm interested in this one. I haven't been able to ascertain, even by watching it being played, how you play it or what kind of game it is. Um, is the third segment in the short bursts here the Sega Solid Gold Guide to Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Is that the uh, Sonic 2 guidebook you referred to in a previous episode, Dave? It is, and so we learn that this book, about which I have so many lovely memories, was written by Tony Takushi oh. of STC. It's all, of the, I mean, the Venn diagram of being a fan of Sonic in the 1990s <laughs> was a flat circle, wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, so here we have Tony just uh, brazenly advertising his own book and then putting in little... Um, Oh, is that what you wanted me to say, Tony? Ed. <laughs> and of course, there's no, there is no Dash Megadroid, so it is just Tony Takushi off book here advertising his own product. But I'm sure he ran it past the editor. It was on sale for a very <laughs> reasonable three ninety nine. Yeah. Graphic zone. And this is a the graphic zone. I don't remember them doing this very often, but it's um. Oh no, this would become a staple. Oh, would it? Oh, I... oh yes, because they got some. They got so many pieces of art they couldn't just post them on the letters page. How rude of me not to remember the graphics. Like, wouldn't necessarily be on uh, every issue, no. but uh, it became very regular. And um, we'll say very, very upfront, we're not here to be all cringy culture about this. Absolutely no not. No, no, no. I'm, I'm very proud of all of these kids. This is a, yeah. This is a, a pictures page, like a letters page. Yeah. They're printing kids' drawings and like, oh, well done, kids. Yeah. And of course, all of them now in their thirties. So it'd be nice to, I don't know, it'd be nice to talk to some of them. I'll see if I can get any of them on as a guest. <laughs> I mean, I, I stress that point because obviously, Sonic the Hedgehog fan art on the internet has picked up a quite a reputation. Um, yes. But the funny thing is that not so much with this issue, but when you look at some of the stuff that'll come in later issues, you can very much follow the dotted line from what these folk were drawing as kids that you see on these pages to what um, Sonic the Hedgehog fan art is made fun of for now online. But we, <laughs> we're not here for that. We're not here to, you know, make fun of any of this. No. But, I mean, yeah, okay, sure. Maybe you do raise your eyebrow at the kid who decided to draw um, Sonic's girlfriend, a pink Sonic the Hedgehog, and put them in a black mini dress and black high heels and it's like well yeah you probably did wind up drawing some of that stuff later in life but. and meanwhile over in mean machines i remember uh, they had a, a drawing sent in of uh, someone called sonia the sex hog Oof. which was very similar and yeah, and yeah, no. This is, there's lots of uh, lovely drawings sent in here. There's one uh, on the left of Sonic standing on Robotnik's shoulders, and Tails standing on his, and Porker Lewis standing on his, holding up the logo. So we've got some creative stuff. I love that it's Porker, doesn't it? Yeah, because. It's like, even though he had only just been in one strip so far, it's like, yeah, Porker was already baked into the fabric of Sonic the comic, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a slight uh, dig at the Game Gear here. Sonic drawn running off with a Game Gear in his hand and Tails saying, Sonic doesn't know there are no batteries. No, no! He's not going to be able to play that. And of course, Sonic here in a 
pair of shades and a big leather jacket. Because it was the 1990s. And he, he was really cool. So well done to Elliot J. Stocks, Michelle Fraser, David Hinton, Anthony Austin, Barry Aldridge and Ben Cook, who all sent in lots of lovely drawings. Genuinely, I mean it. And if any of you are out there, do drop us a line. Proper do. Like, honestly, get in touch. Next, we've got a full-page advertisement, which is of the sort that you used to find in, like, PC magazines rather than comics. It's an Amstrad advert at Silica Systems. Look at this. Oh, gosh, it really is a... That's, I don't like that. No. I mean, I like that as an as an artifact of its time, but I I don't I wouldn't have liked to have turned the page of my comic and seen that looking back at me like I might have seen in a paper for adults. Exactly, or or, or a computer magazine for adults. My dad mm-hmm. used to favor an Amiga magazine that was mostly this stuff. It's it's adverts for grown-ups. Silica Systems offer you free overnight delivery, technical support helpline. There's a mail order thing to cut out and fi- and fill in. It's it's like a catalog. It's it's like proper ad- advertising and cramming as much as they can in on with tiny little letters. But there's one reason why it's worth putting it in this comic, and there's one reason why it's interesting to us because this is the uh, the PC being advertised here. Pride of Place is the Amstrad 386SX here offered for five hundred and ninety nine pounds. And what's good about it, or what's interesting about it for a kid, is that this is the famous computer that had a Mega Drive slot. What? I never knew that. Yeah, it was on Bad Influence and everything. You oh, could, blimey, Bad Influence. You could switch between the computer function and the Mega Drive function of this thing. So you could... It was fully compatible. It, I, I, as I understand it, it had a hardware Mega Drive inside it. It had a Mega Drive cartridge slot on the left, floppy disk drive slot on the right, and, uh, yeah, you chose between the two, and, and it came with a... Or, or you could get a special white Mega Drive joypad, otherwise, you know, the same as the standard joypad, um, to play the games with. I, I was very excited about this, but uh, I've heard it wasn't good in some way. Maybe the computer oh. wasn't that good or something like that. Well, the the idea certainly was enough to dampen the trouser of any child of our generation. Golden Axe! <laughs> The Citadel of Dead Souls, part four, by the regular creative team of writer Mark Isles, artist Mike White, and letterer Richard Bird. This chapter, Axe Battler and Gilius Thunderhead defeat Ultima and her skeletal minions while the sorcerer Blackspell begins the right to resurrect Dark Gold. But Tyrus Flare is able to break her bones and escape before Blackspell can sacrifice her. So Dark Gold, without a soul to sustain him, merges with Blackspell to remain alive and becomes a two-headed monster. I find myself, perhaps despite myself, maybe it's just that we're four chapters in now, but having a bit more fun with this one than I have in previous issues. Yeah, perhaps it's just that we've got used to it, you know? I mean, they do do this bit where, where we get, uh, you know, like, oh, use a mid-level spell, Gilius, and then it's like, huh, a simple flying kick will take care of you. So there's still a, 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 a not uh, unnoticeable amount of that stating a thing from a video game 
prominently in dialogue yes. thing that we've observed in past issues. Yes. But there's some good dialogue touches in here, like, these guys look as hungry as I feel, <laughs> says Gilius while fighting the, the skeletons. Yeah, the- good art, as ever. This is a very grown-up looking comic. Yes, it is. That's a great way of describing it, and I'm surprised that we haven't said it before, but we've just said it's like right out of the sort of British boys comics of the era and slightly older. Those, those one-word valiant warrior mm. eagle words that we were describing earlier. Uh, it is an art style very much out of that. By way of you know your Boris Vallejos, your Frank Frazetta's, your classical um, barbarian artists. Yes. I think this looks lovely. There's something about the, the command of, of 3D without it being particularly like what we would now think of as you know obsessively ruled 3d it's just mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the guy just has a, a knack for it um it's in uh, it's all in the uh the textures it's all in the the painting yes. although i do there, there's a couple of touches that sort of I, I feel as if you wouldn't make those decisions now i quite like the um the when uh when the dwarf one gilius uh is summoning his rock spell it's in the form of a boulder with a little grinny man's face coming out of it and it's yeah i think we saw that initially yeah and not not like a boulder's not not a boulder with a face it's like a man's head coming out of the boulder i think is a the sort of choice that i don't know maybe you wouldn't make now i don't know i mean i again i don't know if it's a game thing or not it looks like it could be but then yeah I don't know. it looks like it could be i mean even the even the stuff about like flying kicks and so on i'm not sure is necessarily references to the game it might just be an attempt to sound like we're talking about a game you know I, well yeah um, it's like i don't imagine the characters shouted out the words in the game because it was a 16-bit game but it, well, it feels sure. like a piece of terminology that you might have pulled out of an instruction booklet. Yes, it does. There's a sort of black comedy at play here when Black Spell is going to sacrifice Tyrus and her soul will keep Gold alive. But she gets away just beforehand, but Gold has already begun to resurrect as the, the spell yes, is underway. He, he brings down the golden axe as though to chop tyrus with it and uh, and yeah she dodges out of the way and I, and I thought that this was a sacrificial situation yeah. that therefore dark gold wouldn't come alive but no he he pops alive anyway he had already begun to come alive as the right had begun and it was only like at the midpoint the soul would transfer so this this revenant this dark gold just awakes and it just goes the horror <laughs> the horror yeah it's just having a really horrible time of having been resurrected, and so he decides, I'm just going to strangle this uh, wizard. That's... Yeah, and then as he's grappling with him, it's like, you tore me from my rest. <laughs> now I must live. And then, yes, the only way for him to survive without the without Tyrus's soul is to merge physically with the wizard, and so they, they create this kind of two-headed, big-bodied guy. It's terribly silly, but in a way that feels like maybe that's how I'm supposed to take it. Oh, definitely. And they're now talking to each other as if they are separate individuals, not just one guy with two heads, but they seem to be in accordance all of a sudden. Whether or not it's just that we've gotten used to it, or whether it now feels like it's actually having a bit of sort of dark fun with the whole concept, um, uh, yeah, this one I've enjoyed more definitely than any of the previous chapters of Golden Axe. I think what it is... Hang on, let me finish my digestive. Is that what you're on? Mm. I think what it is is that we were put off at first by the potential promise of a serious Barbarians comic, and I think we've now realised it isn't taking itself totally seriously. I mean, I feel like it's taken until now before it's fully embraced that. I feel like it was just, it was kind of just straight Barbarian fantasy stuff at the start. The next thing we have in the comic is a full-page advert, and this really places the comic in a certain time and place, for the fact that a new kind of toy is out. Oh, what kind of toy, Dave? 
they're out, it says, as though we've been waiting for them to come out. And sure enough, we have, because now, Chris... What is it? Now the Jurassic Park toys oh, are here. Oh, damn! Oh, snap! <laughs> With incredible lifelike figures from the film, plus the awesome Jurassic Park Command Compound. With electronic fence and surveillance system, they're big, they're vicious, they're out. They're Jurassic Park dinosaurs. Catch them now. If it's not Jurassic Park, it's extinct. Wow! <laughs> Jurassic Park. 1993 in a nutshell, eh? Sonic the Comic and Jurassic Park. Q-Zone. We have a Q-Zone special, which we're going to say almost nothing about. Yeah, because probably safely skip over that, because I didn't play James Bond the Duel, and I don't imagine you did either, did you, Nope, Dave? and this is a two-page solution. It says here, James Bond the Duel, the solution. Now, listeners, that's the word we used in those days instead of walkthrough. Um, or rather, another way of putting that is, you guys all use the word walkthrough instead of solution. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a... Uh, this is, it's a platform game, yeah. but for some reason they've written up like a walkthrough for it here, or a solution, and it's all like, you know, walk through the level, shoot the men. <laughs> Wouldn't be the last time they would do one of these Q-Zone specials that would be dedicated to a specific game, um, but it does not leave one, no, I'll t I, I did say in a previous episode how much I used to pour over Sonic the Comic, <laughs> um, and I'm sure back in the day I read the complete guides in the Q-Zone to games I didn't own, but oh. I'll be honest, in my adult years... I do have better things to do. <laughs> and let's move on and do well. Does this count as better things to do? Let's move on anyway. <laughs> You're keeping that in the cut. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I meant do, reading old comics and talking about them in general, but specifically... <laughs> in Demon World Part 3. Written by Mark Ailes. Art by... Ooh! Gosh! Boyan Dukach, we think? Credited as MDJ Boyan. Letters by Steve Potter. In this episode, Shion fails in his attempt to save the people of Fisherton from Grimo men and his demons, and his arm is struck by a blast from the Demon Lord in the process, which slowly begins to transform him into a demon himself. With the help of a local girl named Byla, Shion escapes the burning town and pursues the demons over the ocean. It's just a bunch of stuff that happens, isn't it? Kind of, yeah. It's like after he gets the hit from the Demon Lord, they start burning the town, and this local girl helps him through the fire and guides him out of the burning town through an underground passage. There's a big worm snake monster in there, and he fights it, and she gives him a charm that allows him to breathe underwater so that he can follow the demons as they take their prisoners on their underwater caravan. And then an octopus appears, and he fights it, and that's it. It doesn't sound like you're particularly keen on this one. From your, I take that from your tone. Yeah, you know, like, we've we've not been kind to Wonder Boy thus far, but this one definitely, so this out of all of them so far, it's like, it's just a bunch of stuff that happens one after the other. I, it's given me no reason to care about any of these people or why they're doing what they're doing. The interesting thing this episode is that, yeah, uh, Shion gets his hand zapped and uh, yeah. and then the artist sort of quite artfully hides that hand for the whole of the rest of the issue either it's yeah, just poking yeah. off panel or it's just behind something and then the next time we see it it's uh, it's a sort of a clawy flipper so it doesn't actually say in this issue that he is turning into a demon just that his hand has yeah, but it, yeah I mean his hand has turned into a blue claw yes yeah and I mean look yes I have no intention of uh, coming here and being mean about this old comic that I love and uh, d truthfully I didn't have any you know, I didn't. I wasn't reading this, going like, "Oh, I don't like this." There's just not much to say about it, and the the dialogue is a little bit um, 
well, for example, the, the cliffhanger is that the big octopus shows up and, and Shion goes, yikes, double bubbling trouble. So that's the sort of comic. It's like it was written by algorithm. <laughs> like, honestly, like, I'm not, not being funny or anything. Like, it is just a bunch of events that happen one after the other, barely strung together, with dialogue from a character who feels like he's observing the story rather than taking part in it. Well, and a very odd thing is the introduction of this Baila character, or Baila, B-A-I-L-A, and she's, like, designed as a sort of a wonder girl. Yeah, she's got yeah. the blue hair, she's got the striking purple and blue tight clothes, she looks like a hero character. She's got the sort of the tall boots and all this, and of course her magic medallion. And she just, unless I'm mistaken, unless I didn't notice her, just appears out of nowhere a native of the village presumably but yep just uh, yeah. again it, it's we've talked about it in previous ones where where it sometimes feels like you know panels of the story really just sort of happen one after the other and they don't actually feel connected to one another she's just there suddenly it's, she's suddenly just there in the middle of a fight she's standing over him with with such a striking uh, costume and, and the blue hair that it's you we feel as if we ought to have seen him in the distance somewhere and she goes quick while her attention is diverted and she leads him off and, and it made me think this must be a character from the game then that they're bringing in and that's why she looks so designed but i can't find any mention of of her no i i could see why anybody might think that yeah but she didn't strike me as as that maybe it was just because you know in in the same way that for instance you would think perhaps that this snake is a boss from the game or this octopus is a boss from the game but so far as i can see they aren't oh really i was assuming that they were and and further i was assuming that what we have here is a, a means of getting the story to move to the underwater level. Well, I mean, that's the thing, yeah. It's structured like a video game, where Shion just moves from place to place and fights a boss and then and then he's there. And I presume that probably is kind of deliberate, and it's a deliberate way to sort of evoke the structure of a video game. But if you'd like to see an example of that done well, ref Shinobi. Yeah. I guess at this point they're trying to figure out how to do it because, and the interesting thing is that the, almost none of this is how the comic settles down. We'll see lots of different styles moving forwards because we're now pushing our way through these all of these first initial strips. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly remember that, um, even though I knew it was going to happen because of the adverts in the first issue, it did feel interesting when Golden Axe and Shinobi uh, stopped, when they ended and other stuff began. And of course, not long after that, they started to introduce secondary stories also based on Sonic. I think it would take until, I want to say, issue 18 was the first one of those. Really? And, and that was... I think so, yeah. That was when it, it sort of turned a, a bit of a corner, but uh, we'll get there when we get there. I think at this stage we are now into the genuine letters, right? Yes. See, this is the point I was making there earlier on with Megadroids on the intro page, where they would have real correspondence. So I think that yes, the um, the complimentary letters this issue are real, and the um, the not so complimentary letters this issue are also real. I think we have a letter in the middle here called "Sad Case." It's very long, and I'll just read it to you. It goes like this: Read away at it, there, Dave. Dear STC. Come on! 95p for a measly 36 pages of rubbish. Now, at this point, you could well be forgiven for thinking that we have another Mr. Oldfash on our hands, but this goes so far that I think if what they were trying to do was to create their own antagonistic letter, I don't think they would go this far. For 195, I can buy 134 pages of a great Sega magazine. Dr. Robotnik's egg jokes are completely sad and aimed at six-year-olds who aren't in general as into Sega as, say, the 9 to 14 age group. Sonic is hard and strong. He's well hard, isn't he? Don't you think? He is well hard! He is hard and strong. 
The way he's drawn, anyone would think Luigi could beat him up. And I'm, now it's starting to sound more made up. Maybe it was. Maybe they're softening the language here. Mm, maybe. But then this next line, Robotnik, who is meaner than Doomsday from the Superman comics, is drawn as hard as My Little Pony. And now I think it's real again. <laughs> <laughs> the review zone. How can you say Tom and Jerry has better graphics than Road Avenger? Try giving the games a rating on Lifespan, something most Sega games lack. No, we have a Nintendo fan here. Shinobi is well hard, but a bit too complicated for your average six-year-old. This is someone who's just, if they're real, they're just railing against nothing. Yeah, yeah, they're railing the- against this this imaginary vision they have of the comics audience. Yes. it's like for, So it's like, you know, he's complaining that... that, that He's first of all he complains that Robotnik's egg jokes are sad and aimed at six year olds, yeah. and then says that Shinobi is too complicated for six year olds. Yeah. So this is somebody who was determined to just say bad things about the comic, even though those are two literally those two points literally contradict each other. Yeah. The, this guy, you know, if he'd been this age a couple of decades later, he'd be ripe for recruitment by a couple of online groups I can think of. Oh, you can bet that. <laughs> you're obviously not going to print this letter because you're so bloody chicken. Now, I want to flag this up. This is a legit swear word in 1993. In 1993 it is, yeah. It's been softened since, especially since like the Harry Potters cemented it as okay mm-hmm. to put in kids' stuff. But I I think back in 1990... Unless I was particularly weedy, and I was, but... Me too. I think that was... I think it was surprising to see that word printed in something for kids in 1993. Oh, my mother would have objected if that had come out of my mouth. Yeah, I mean, it, I remember, I remember my mum not just like being oh tut tut tut, but like visibly being quite upset that when they started saying bloody in an episode of Monty Python that my uh, your, your delicate young ears were exposed. Uh, well, to not it. mine, but my younger brother who was three years younger than me and, and at the time nine years old, and she was very concerned. Uh, genuine, like you could tell, she was actually like distressed, and so that. That's what we're looking at. That was an actual swear word in those days, and to see it here is quite a thing. I have a similar one, actually, um, and it's Sonic-related. Um, yeah. Was We're going forward a couple of years ago, but the, um, Sonic the Comic published a Knuckles... Uh, knockout special? The Knuckles Knockout special, that was <laughs> it. And it featured a quote-unquote interview with Knuckles. And oh. uh, the interview steamed up Knuckles at one point, and the interviewer said, well, it's a little funny, isn't it, or something like that. And Knuckles replied that... It's ruddy well not. And I was like, ruddy. Hmm. And I used that in real life. <laughs> that's the first time you heard it. Oh, that's great. Uh, and the mother didn't take kindly to that. <laughs> well, you see now, I, I, I don't know. I think she's being a bit extreme there because ruddy is like how you say bloody without swearing, wasn't it? Uh, I suppose, but Irish mammies, you know. Oh, uh, right. What else we got on the letters page? Oh, here's somebody shouting back at Old Fash. Yes. This letter's about Mr. Old Fash who made that really awful comment about your mag in the first issue. All I can say is I hope he's reading this because I hope he falls flat on his face. <laughs> I think Sonic the comic's the best. And then Megadroid promises uh, you weren't alone in wanting to rearrange Mr. Old Fash's features. I have a feeling he will be heard from again. I feel like there was at least one more old-fashioned letter or something. Yeah? Oh, I hope so. I mean, certainly, I I think these letters are real, but I think they're all being quite heavily rewritten. um, Because they all have something about the wording of them is like, da-da-da this, but da-da-da that. It's it's all sort of done in snappy editorial-style sentences, I think. Well, I I think nearly every... Whenever you've only got this amount of space to... I don't don't think Oliver Dean from Bournemouth sent in a a, a two-sentence letter. (laughs) Yes. 
I think yeah. your mag is brilliant. I've got a Nintendo, but I think Sega is a thousand times better. First, I wanted a Game Boy, then a Super Nintendo, but now I want a Mega Drive. And it's like, you probably did send something more than that. But they, they Well, possibly, although that would fit nicely on a postcard, wouldn't it? Oh, that's true, yeah. I love Megatroid's reply to that one. Nintendo. Sorry, is this some kind of system I'm not aware of? Do they do, they do video games as well? Sass! There's a couple of bits of fan art here again. We've got one from uh, an Andy Roberts of Altrincham. Um, pretty much everything that uh, Andy Roberts has on his game gear. <laughs> yeah, what do we got there? We got uh, Chuck Rock. Yeah. Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And and we got a couple of lemmings climbing a rock. Oh, that's what it is. They're backwards. Yes, and and something exploding, potentially a lemming. We have um, poets' corner. Um, and I'm reading this out for a reason. Dear Sonic, I've written a poem about your fab new mag, says Jonathan Cordell of Watford, Hertfordshire. Game Gear owner, Sonic badge winner. I've written a poem about your fab new mag. Sonic, and it's one of those where if you look at it down... An acrostic. Is that what it's called? Where you look at it down the side and the first letter of each line spells out Sega. Um, Sonic the comic is really cool. Every fortnight when I get home from school, go to the shop and get my copy and read and read because I can't stop it. And uh, Megadroid replies, Stoppy? What kind of language is that for an educated Hume? Still, I must admit, it does scan nicely, Jonathan. And you know how sometimes you'll just be influenced by things and it'll just go in? I can't now remember what this is, but I know that I've drawn a comic where someone is being made fun of or repeatedly punched or something and the person to which it, to which it is happening and i think they are a villain because i hear it in my head in a villainous voice goes what are you doing stop that stop stop it <laughs> i can't remember what this was i'll dig it up somewhere at some point and i'll go oh it was that but i just remember that that must have stuck in from this I think that's where you got that it from. must be from this and under that, a piece of fan art uh, called Robotnik Throws a Fit by John Mulcreevy of Birmingham, who is just as good as some of the artists we've had in SCC. Yeah, yeah, he's, 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 he's up there with Woodrow Phoenix. That's a really good bit of... <laughs> Woodrow's a cool guy. No. <laughs> okay, yeah, it's a really good little bit of fan art. It's He's got all shiny effects, and, st- and he, I think he's using Tipex. Ah, you could be right, yeah. Around the edges there to create a little shine. That's good. That's good stuff. And if you'd like to uh, send in letters and artwork to the podcast, then every letter and drawing that appears on the podcast will not win any kind of Sega-sational prize. You'll Um, win our respect. We don't have any brilliant Sonic 2 badges exclusive to STCTP, and they can't be yours. So be the coolest Sonic boomer in your area. Get writing and drawing now. (laughs) And that just leaves us with what we're getting next issue. Uh, thrills to the max with the video gamers comic. Sonic in sp- Sonic in space? That's not right. I can tell you very much that's not right. That's issue six, because that's my first <laughs> issue. So it sounds oh. like something got shuffled around a little bit. Danger on the Death Egg satellite there won't be next issue. Yeah. Not next issue. Golden axe in the air, caught by the bird of prey. Wonder boy under the sea. Riddle of the bubble jungle. <laughs> that sounds more entertaining than anything we've had from Wonder Boy so far. Shinobi <laughs> in trouble. Stomped by the stilt man. Plus new look, new look charts now featuring mega CD hits, latest news reviews, charts, tips, hints and tricks, and many more surprises on sale Saturday, July twenty fourth. Oh, new look charts. Well, I mean, that 
That is the least important part of the entire comic. I don't know why it they is. bothered. But I like that they considered it important, you know? I mean, that's the great thing uh, yeah. about Sonic the comic overall, is that every bit of it was key to its identity. The news, the reviews, yeah. the charts, they were what made it more than just a collection of good comic strips and turned it into this strange hybrid of comic and magazine that it was, this unique identity that it had. You're right there, yeah. And uh, just as we go, I just want to point out that when we close the magazine, we get on the back an advert for Paperboy 2 coming soon for the Mega Drive. Isn't that sweet? Aww. So that's it for issue number four. Yeah, and we've got a guest for the next episode. Um, Abby Denton's going to be here. She's a stand-up comic and showrunner of the audio sitcom Cyber Cafe. She's going to be talking to us about this. So it's going to be about the same, but there'll be three of us that time. (laughs) So that's it for issue number four. Now, if you want to follow us on social media, I am Chris McFeely on Twitter and YouTube. I am Demon Tomato Dave, one word, on Twitter and YouTube and Twitch. And we will see you next issue. What do we got there? We got uh, Chuck Rock. Yeah. Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And I, Dave, can I actually, can I take that line again? Because I said Mickey Mouse the stupid American way on accidentally. <laughs> did you say Mickey Mouse? I did, yeah. Oh, accidentally. dear. I know that's appalling. I'm, I'm glad you know what that is when <laughs> I say that. Well, I've, too, always, you know? I've always been extremely bothered by the concept of Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. Robin Hood and <laughs> Mickey Mouse and Breaking Bad. <laughs> okay. And Chaos Emeralds. That one's fine. <laughs> Nope, Chaos Emeralds. That's the same! <laughs> no, Chaos Emeralds is not the same as Chaos Emeralds. Okay, would you like to do your Mickey retake? I would like that. You can, just, <laughs> you can just drop the two words into the middle of the sentence. Go. Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I won't let it stand. I won't let it stand. I'm just going to cut everything else out of the podcast. It'll just be yeah, that's a, the whole podcast. an hour of silence and then you going Mickey Mouse.